This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. You're listening to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. On the show, the first player to receive an NCAA basketball scholarship with a donated heart. The 99-year-old CN Tower climber and road hockey to conquer cancer. But first, food insecurity, hunger, a deepening issue here in Canada. Yes, Canada, the land of plenty, and it is rooted in poverty. Food Banks Canada recently released its nationwide and province-by-province poverty report cards. The results are eye-opening and heartbreaking. Kirsten Beardsley is the CEO of Food Banks Canada. She doesn't just talk the talk, she walks the walk. Kirsten joins us now on the feed with more on these very telling poverty report cards. Welcome to the show, Kirsten. Glad to have you back again. Thanks so much for having me. So why issue poverty report cards? To what end? Well, really, what Food Banks Canada and food banks across the country do is help people with the immediate need for food every day, and we know that. But we've always been committed to seeing the need for food banks come down, be reduced. And we didn't have a tool that allowed us to say, hey, what's working in other provinces that we can share? How can we address the root causes of food insecurity and food bank use, which of course are poverty, low incomes, um, affordability issues. So there wasn't a tool out there for us to use, so we built it ourselves. I think that's terrific. Now you talked about other provinces. Why go province by province? And what stands out to me, I've just pulled up one of the graphics uh, from your website. It looks as if Quebec is doing well. It's got a B minus grade, but look at Ontario, D minus. Yeah, so... So the reason we went province by province was really because a lot of the the policy, the social policy we need to see is really within the realm of the provincial governments. Um, and so we wanted to see, as I said, who's doing a good job and where are folks, where are governments struggling to implement uh, appropriate policy changes. And Quebec does score the highest. Um, you know, they had some real momentum. It's, it's a couple of governments ago, but or a couple of generations ago around uh, they were the first province to implement a poverty reduction strategy. They had affordable childcare before any other province, and their benefits and assistance programs in the province are fixed, are indexed to inflation, and so people aren't falling further behind. And we're seeing that when we look at their, for example, their food insecurity rates, which are lower than than the other provinces. So I want to expand a little bit on what Ontario is doing and not doing. Mm-hmm. So in the report card, which we've you've given. Uh, a D minus, experience of poverty, D, poverty measures, D, material deprivation, D minus, and legislative progress, F. What does that mean? So yeah, we looked at uh, um, several dimensions to allow us to come up with the score and where we're struggling in Ontario really is around um, people's experience, the high cost of living, people's experiences of poverty. So the number of people in this province who are spending more than 30% of their income on housing um, is is higher than some other provinces. Rates of social assistance in particular for people on disability, for example, are low and are not keeping pace with the high cost. And so what we're seeing is um, an inadequate standard of living for too many people across the province. We're also seeing um, that there's a racialized lens in Ontario that uh, people who are black or indigenous or um, are racialized in other ways are experiencing poverty and food insecurity at much higher rates um, than, than white people. And, and what can be done about that? That's a really, really difficult problem. Yeah, so what we've, what we've proposed to, for the Ontario government is to look at um, implementing a poverty reduction strategy across the government that ties a target to reduce, strat- uh, to reduce poverty within the province to the federal target of you know, reducing poverty by 50% by 2030. So that allows for a whole-of-government approach because you're right, it's a complex issue. It's not going to be solved by one policy alone. Um, but we, we have also recommended 
needed some specific policies. We need to see more money um, for folks who are low income today, including low income workers. There's a, you know, working class folks in Ontario are really struggling even with a full-time job. Um, so it includes addressing the income side as well as um, addressing things like affordable housing um, and making sure that people have a roof over their heads. I just want to go back to the racialized lens that you were speaking mm. about. That that has is a very complex issue and obviously it's having a, a very negative effect on on people's ability to earn a living, to to feed themselves, to find shelter, to you know, to live a quality life. How can that be dealt with? What are, what are your suggestions? Yeah, and it, you know, again, it's it's about addressing the root causes of poverty, um, affordability. Um, we see increased mental health challenges for folks who are racialized in Ontario, and so it's about again a whole of government approach. We need to build more affordable housing and make sure that's accessible um, to folks who are racial in racialized communities. And we need to do the work of addressing systemic racism. It's clear that not everyone in this country feels poverty or experiences food insecurity at the same rate or in the same ways and so our approach needs to be you know it needs to include general things like housing but it also needs to include the specific experiences of people who who deal with systemic barriers at a at a higher rate than others and societal attitudes yes yeah all right let's talk about this and and we're still grading the provinces the 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 country you gave a failing grade to all levels of government, pretty much right across the board. What what's what are they are they dropping the ball? Are they not connected? Or do they care? Is anybody listening, Kirsten? Well, it's hard. I mean, I say this, you know, I've said this so many times. We're at the highest level of food bank use in Canadian history. I don't know how many more times I can say that. I you know, it's not a record we want to keep breaking. And quite frankly, we're not seeing governments uh, feel the sense of urgency that we are feeling at the food bank um, level. You know, we consider ourselves a canary in the coal mine. People show up at the doors of the food bank before they show up in federal statistics around poverty and food insecurity. And we continue to say things are not okay. There are too many people struggling. And then now we've got a new wave of folks who have never thought they would have to turn to a food bank before in their lives, people with jobs, um, you know, families coming to the food bank, and it's not sustainable. We cannot continue to deal with this level of growth. So what we hope to see... Um, you know, I do want to mention, though, that what this, these poverty report cards are, it's not just presenting a problem. We've done the work to present the solutions as well. So I see this as a real offering to government. No, we're not seeing the action that we need to see, but here's how you can make progress in your province or at the federal level. Give us an example of what you suggest might be a plan moving forward to try to reduce the, the, the number of people using food banks, but really just in general food insecurity across this nation. I mean, in general, what we're seeing is every jurisdiction could do more on affordable housing. Um, we, you know, we are seeing far, far too many folks across this country, um, really from coast to coast to coast, spending, a, you know, way more than 30% of their income on, um, on housing, which puts you in such a precarious situation when, you know, you lose a job or your car breaks down or, what, or your kid needs, you know, something for school. You simply don't have the give in your budget. So if if we want to have an impact, one of the areas that every jurisdiction could do better on is investments in affordable housing, which has to mean money in people's pockets today. Um, 70% of folks who, who use food banks pay market rents, and so they, we need some relief there for low-income folks, as well as long-term investments in affordable housing. The other area where we see there could be a lot of um, improvements, including in Ontario, is just around social assistance. You know, when you've got people on disability who live below half of the poverty line um, and are forced to use food banks as part of their coping strategies to get through the month, we're not, you know, that's not a path out of poverty for, for folks. And so 
again, every province and and federally in terms of like employment insurance at the federal level or ensuring the, the dis- Canadian disability benefit goes through, um, every government has a role to play. The minimum wage went up to 16.55 on October 1st here in Ontario. Is that a drop in the bucket in terms of help or will there be an impact? I mean, there's no doubt more money in people's pockets is not a bad thing in this environment. I do think we've seen um, studies show that the living wage in Ontario right now is much, much higher. So when you've got um, when you've got housing costs as high as they are, um, things you know, essentials like food costs as high as they are, um, it's not an easy living for sure. And many people who are making uh, minimum wage still have to come to the food bank. And and as I said, we're seeing that number. Grow. We're seeing the number of people who have um, incomes and still need the food banks on the rise, and that's that's a pretty significant indicator of of trouble within within our society. Mm, Kirsten Beardsley, CEO, Food Banks Canada. Thank you for your caring, for your concern, and for your heavy lifting. Very much appreciated. Thank you so much. Glenn Perkins is next with a new report from York U about the big city and immigrant success. Newcomers to Canada face numerous challenges. They can be as simple as not having an understanding of English or French to finding somewhere to live and getting a job. Yelena Vickic is Associate Professor at York University. She's been taking a look into the role that cities play in the success of new migrants. So the initial goal was to understand whether the physical environment and most importantly a city like Toronto affects how migrants um, search for work and also how they integrate. Why is that important? So um, we talk a lot about the importance of context for uh, one's, you know, careers and and work and life and, and well-being in general, but we don't know as much about the physical um, aspects of the city and how that may affect newcomers who are just starting to navigate and to understand this new place where they moved. What did your research discover? We found how specific artifacts and ways that individuals go about searching for work from um, simple things such as, you know, job search directories to employment centers and, of course, people they meet on the streets and during their settlement, how that influences later finding work in the city as well as how they integrate and what they perhaps give back to the local society. As we have seen with the nursing profession and the shortage of healthcare workers, Migrants that have professional designations, they're not always immediately transferable. That's right, they're not. So a lot of regulated professions um, have harder time getting a job in Toronto or in Canada. How do they cope with that? So obviously there's a question of translating their credentials and obtaining the local education and local credentials. Um, And for some occupations, you know, it's a complicated question because for some occupations, it's easier than others. But I would say in both cases, we find that obtaining local social capital or getting to know people locally in those professions would always help. I'm also uh, an immigrant and still remember the challenges Mm -hmm. that I faced when I first arrived in Toronto. Uh, For me, not knowing anyone, getting to know the legal system, political levels of power, money, finding somewhere to live, and it can all be very overwhelming. Yes, correct. That is one of the reasons why we studied or paid attention a little bit more to the physical context. And so we find these sort of visual spatial cues that migrants identify with in the new city often create uh, a little bit of increase their comfort and increase their belongingness. And what we also find is that these first initial experiences, both with the city but also with people around them, really frame their later integration. So, you know, some people integrated just to be functional, while others 
were very much about reciprocity and giving back to the local city and communities in general. And those that did that, you know, gave back. So early experiences uh, of of migrants are important in uh, later adaptation. For those migrants, looking back on the challenges that they faced and where they are now in society, did they say it was all worth it? A lot of them did, and uh, a lot of them found sort of inspiration and satisfaction in creating certain, you know, objects or tools as we find them, such as a directory or creating a specific organization that helps regulated professionals or, you know, a language school and things like that. So they very much found satisfaction by helping others. Yelena Vikic, Associate Professor at York University, thank you for joining us on The Feed today. Thank you so much for your call and interest in my work. Coming up on The Feed, expanded prescription powers for pharmacists. Do you have a story idea for The Feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of The Feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. The headline read, Ontario Pharmacy's prescription powers expanded. Last weekend, Health Minister Sylvia Jones announced an increased list of common medical conditions that pharmacists can now treat. So what are those ailments? How will pharmacists prepare for these new responsibilities? And what will the impact be on this province's already strained healthcare system? Here with some answers is Justin Bates, CEO of Ontario Pharmacists. Welcome to The Feed, Justin. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. So, Justin, let's rewind to the beginning of this year. Pharmacists have been prescribing medication for 13 common ailments since January 1st, 2023. As of last Sunday, October the 1st, they can now add another six to their scripts list, if you will. So why was this program started in the first place? It really meets uh, the unmet uh, or the gaps in the healthcare system uh, to address the uh, challenges that we're having with capacity and trying to keep people out of um, emergency departments and to grant greater access to community-based services so that Ontarians have more convenience and options for these 13 minor ailments and now 19. And I'm looking at the list of the original 13. So hay fever, for instance, pink eye, hemorrhoids, cold sores, insect bites or hives, 13 altogether. The new ones, acne, canker sores, diaper rash, yeast infections, parasite worms, pregnancy, nausea and vomiting. So why was the original 13 chosen as was and and why add the sixth now that, that pharmacists will be able to deal with? Well, this is very welcome, and given the fact that we've had over 400,000 assessments performed by pharmacists in community pharmacies across the province over the last uh, eight months, it is a cautious approach. Uh, We are playing a bit of catch-up to what the other provinces have in terms of the regulatory frameworks that enable pharmacists to prescribe. Uh, Most provinces have at least 30 conditions, Hmm. and the high watermark would be Alberta, which has uh, the ability to... Uh, enable pharmacists to prescribe any medication that's not a controlled substance. So when you look at the original 13, I think in large part it was to build confidence and see how the public uh, receptivity would be for accessing these types of services and to work uh, in collaboration with physicians who initially had a bit of uh, backlash, as we expected, because it is something new in Ontario, but it's certainly not new when you look at uh, what's been implemented across the country. And, you know, you bring up some good points. First of all, a little bit of apprehension, perhaps, on the part of the public having a pharmacist writing a prescription. Was there that kind of situation over these several months since uh, the new powers were given to pharmacists? We didn't see that apprehension in reality because I think there is such a uh, desire to have uh, more timely access to community-based services. And with over 2 million Ontarians without a general practitioner, uh, that just um, really exposes the gaps in the healthcare system. So people, I think, are more familiar with what a pharmacy is now, having gone through the pandemic and seen pharmacists uh, step up with uh, COVID vaccinations, testing, 
for COVID as well as providing uh, uh, prescriptions for Paxlovid. And I think that's really changed the perception and seeing a pharmacist as a healthcare community hub. And people were ready for this. People are ready for uh, tapping into the trusted uh, relationship they have with um, pharmacists. And they see a pharmacist on average 12 times more annually than they do a family physician. So the relationships are there. It just hasn't been as leveraged uh, as it could have been. And we're building momentum around this program to eventually get to where the other provinces are. And you had mentioned that there might have been a little bit of pushback initially from doctors. How are they responding to this now? I mean, does it does it feel like their load is being lessened? Well, I think if you look at the 400,000 assessments that have been uh, performed in pharmacies uh, since the launch in, in January of this year, you know, you think about those 400,000 people and where they would have accessed services, either through walk-in clinics or waiting uh, to get an appointment from a family physician or even worse, presenting into emergency departments. So I think there's definitely uh, some degree of creating capacity and alleviating the pressures on the system, but it's not a panacea. We need to continue to have government invest in hiring more family physicians and taking a multi-pronged approach. But certainly this is an integrated, collaborative approach with physicians and not about taking from one to give to the other. It's really about raising the opportunities for all healthcare providers to practice to the maximum of their education and skill sets and doing so in the safest, most effective way. And how do pharmacists prepare to take on these added responsibilities? Well, the great news is that pharmacists are highly educated, um, advanced education of over six years. Um, many have what we call a PharmD, a doctorate in pharmacy. And as part of their curriculum, all of the pharmacy schools across the country, they, they train for this. So we've been able to do this for uh, a long time in terms of our skill sets. It's just getting the regulatory frameworks uh, enabled in order to tap into that expertise. And we have over 10 years of experience in other provinces where this has been done safely and effectively uh, in a, on a much uh, grander scale when you look at Alberta and Saskatchewan in particular. You mentioned that other provinces may have up to 30 different ailments that pharmacists are allowed to treat and to prescribe drugs for. What about the administering of certain injection and inhalation treatments, for instance, insulin or osteoporosis treatments, even vitamin B12? Is that on the horizon for Ontario pharmacists or is it already there? Well, good news on that front is that it was uh, enabled uh, uh, last year, so pharmacists do have that uh, capability beyond demonstration purposes to administer shots like a B12. Um, so that is in place, but unfortunately, we haven't moved past uh, some of the vaccinations, immunization programs that have been in place, like the flu shot, COVID vaccines, and travel. So we have been advocating to ensure that routine immunizations are included for all publicly funded vaccines, and uh, that continues to be uh, implemented in a more of a piecemeal fashion, similarly to what they're doing in the phased approach with the minor ailments program. Instead of just putting all 30-plus uh, ailments in, they're doing it over a period of time. And, in fact, there's 17 more that are being contemplated by the Ontario College of Pharmacists as uh, recommendations back to the minister that we expect uh, will be implemented in hopefully 2024 because there are still some gaps, um, particularly around women's health in the current program, not having uh, emergency contraception and birth control uh, as two examples that we think are important to uh, include. So those could be included. Uh, we have to wait and see. But what else would you like to see? What would be on your wish list? Well, ultimately, we'd love to see harmonization across the country because really there's no reason why a pharmacist in one province can practice at a higher scope than uh, another province when we have a universal type of healthcare system, as well as patients. I mean, the patients aren't any different in Ontario than they are in um, Alberta and BC. So I think getting to a place where we have prescribing authority, working in collaboration with physicians uh, up to any medication that's not a controlled substance would be our ideal state, um, but certainly welcoming the progress we've made to date and the acknowledgement both from the public and the positive receptivity to uh, being able to access these services through their pharmacists in the community, as well as the government's acknowledgement that they need to continue to move on these things so that uh, we give 
Ontarians more options and better health care. Justin, it is Thanksgiving weekend. We are anticipating the arrival of both the COVID vaccine and the flu vaccine somewhere in the next few weeks, at least by the end of October. What can we as the public, as potential, I don't know if we call ourselves patients, but those who would go to a pharmacy and to a pharmacist to, to have those shots, what can we do to make the process that much easier, safer and smoother? Well, I would uh, encourage everyone to check with their pharmacy of choice uh, online. Most pharmacies uh, have an online booking system, and that's the most efficient way to schedule an appointment. Um, but there is still a balance between managing the demand through appointments and scheduling it to on-demand walk-in, which obviously with our accessibility, uh, that is one of the continuations of our service model. Um, and we do expect the high-dose flu uh, vaccine to be distributed to pharmacies the week of October 10th, uh, and that's available for those that are 65 and older. And then uh, the COVID uh, the COVID shot, the new variant um, by both uh, Pfizer and Moderna, is probably going to arrive in late October, early November, uh, depending on supply. Um, so expect that uh, your pharmacist will be ready and uh, will be uh, mobilizing once again to get as many people vaccinated as possible. Justin Bates, CEO, Ontario Pharmacist. Thank you so much for joining us on the feed. It was just terrific. Thank you. My pleasure. The road hockey to conquer cancer may be in the books for this year, but plans are already underway for 2024. Jim Lang now with the pregame. It is the Road Hockey to Conquer Cancer, and this past weekend we had the 12th annual version of it, and it was an outstanding success. More than $3.15 million raised, and next year, we're already looking ahead to next year, September 28, 2024, to be part of this huge event. To talk more about it, thrilled to be joined by a very special individual from right here in New York region, Steve Merker, the VP of Corporate and Community Partnerships with our good people of the Princess Margaret Cancer Foundation joining us in the feed. Steve, how are you? I'm great, Jim. How are you doing today? Good. Uh, I've been privileged enough to be a part of the Road Hockey Conquer Cancer event uh, year after year. And since the switch to the Vaughn Metropolitan Center, I don't know what it is. It just gets bigger and bigger. And this past year, the 12th anniversary of it, uh, Steve, it was just a, the weather, the vibe, the money race. It was a 10 out of 10 event. It, it absolutely was. You know, as, as an event operator and a fundraiser, I'm always aspiring to have a perfect event and uh, this was one of the closest things to a perfect event with the weather the as you said the vibe the, the sense of community like all these like 1800 hockey players slash cancer warriors were out there you know just just having a, a great celebration of the day and celebrating raising 3.15 million a new world record and we're here to conquer cancer in a lifetime and that money's going to go to help do that before we get to some of the things we can do next year, um, some of the words we heard from the different individuals, the different experts from Princess Margaret, including their astounding president and CEO, Mio Yamashita, talking about uh, the new things that they're developing from the money raise, the, the, the odds of you beating cancer. And the one bombshell that I couldn't believe that if Terry Fox had his type of cancer today, Princess Margaret, not only would he not die, he would have saved his leg. Yeah, you know, there's there's less and less people who have osteosarcoma that have to have a full amputation like Terry did, and and uh, you know if Terry were around today, he would absolutely be you know continuing and finishing his marathon of hope. But uh, you know, sadly, we know the story of Terry. But um, as uh, Rod Black, our, our announcer, mentioned on Saturday morning, you know, Terry Fox, greatest Canadian, what he has done to inspire so many generations to fundraise and rally around this disease, it's, uh, it's been truly inspirational. I think one of the things that's been inspirational to me, Steve, is, is the fact that we talk so openly and honestly about cancer, about treatment, about your illness, about preventative medicine, about getting tested, something that I just didn't hear growing up, and now it's out in the open, and people are being active about their health care and making sure they prevent something from happening. Yeah, well, Jim, the, the, the sad thing about um, the C word or cancer is that you know, 50 years ago, people didn't even want to say the cancer word because it was synonymous with death. But things are much different now. And in fact, uh, several years ago, we changed our name from the Princess Margaret Hospital to the Princess Margaret Cancer Center because we wanted to be really 
loud and proud about our name and and the fact that if you are diagnosed with cancer there's so many more options than there were 50 years ago even 20 years ago and uh and so when people are diagnosed with cancer today we want to catch it early and we're working on liquid biopsies to help empower your gp to detect cancer super early and uh and then there's so many more options uh, in terms of treatment to maybe avoid the the toxic chemotherapy that so many people know of today so yeah we're working on so many exciting things with the money that's raised from events like like the road hockey to conquer cancer canadians typically don't like to tout themselves and pat each other on the back but when you think that princess margaret's one of the top five cancer research center on the planet that is something to be proud of steve yeah you know we were we were i was talking with one of our like researchers uh, last week and he said in the in the international research community princess margaret is right up there and everybody knows about princess margaret but unfortunately a lot of people in our communities don't recognize that they you know, they think Princess Margaret is this hospital on University Avenue, but it's not. It's, it's Canada's number one research institute in terms of cancer, and, and it is one of the top five global cancer research centers, and we should be loud and proud about that fact. And, you know, when you support Princess Margaret, it's not just about supporting this place in Toronto. It's, a, it's, it's about supporting a place that's going to change the standard of care for patients who are treated at Southlake or treated in Niagara Falls or treated in Calgary or treated anywhere in the world. So... You know, the folks that came out on the weekend and, and supported are, are truly making an impact globally. And you can get more details of what they do at thepmcf.ca. Now, we have something special going on from now to the end of the month. You can earn 50% off registration for next year's event taking place September 28, 2024. You can use the promo code The Region at roadhockeytoconquercancer.ca and get 50% off your registration. I mean, Steve, that, that is a fantastic deal. Yeah, well, and and Jim, you would have seen it on the on the weekend. I think we had 155 or so teams out there, and from my understanding, we've got 143 or 144 of them already committing to next year. And we can only fit like we can only fit a few more teams, uh, you know, uh, from this year to next year. So we're hoping that uh, there's a few teams that you know are hearing us today and they get inspired and they they sign up because, you know, I think about 160, 165 is going to be our limit, and we're almost there. So we're hoping that uh, a few more of you join us uh, for next year's edition, the thir- the lucky 13th annual Road Hockey to Conquer Cancer. That's September 28, 2024. Go to roadhockeytoconquercancer.ca, use the promo code Region, and get 50% off registration. Uh, speaking with Steve Merker, who is the Dynamic VP of Corporate and Community Partnerships with the Princess Margaret Cancer Foundation, and you know, I mean, you are always out there and always just so energetic and just giving so much of yourself. Afterwards, when you look back on some of the things that you've done, do you ever just take a breath and go, wow, we really did something special in the last 12 months? Yeah, you, you know, it's, uh, you know, the, the game day is something we celebrate. It sort of culminates all the hard work that the whole team and all of our players and team captains and sponsors and volunteers have, have put into it. But what inspires me, and uh, you would have seen it in our opening ceremonies, we had Alpesh Patel, who's no. been playing for 12 years. And Alpesh was diagnosed with cancer right around the, his one-year wedding anniversary, uh, a form of uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And, you know, the, the guy didn't know if he was ever going to have a family and have children and even survive his cancer. And, and uh, you know, Alpesh was there, you know, as a sort of thriver. And he was there with his wife and three kids and... You know, we're seeing more and more stories like Alpesh's and, you know, the money raised is, uh, yeah, we celebrate the money raised and, yeah, new world record, but it's really what the money is able to empower our scientists to do so that we have more people like Alpesh with, with stories of hope and success and, uh, and the whole family unit stays intact. And that's what really inspires me. Steve, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe uh, after 12 years, the, the, the dollar figure is over $30 million, the Road Hockey to Conquer Cancer. That is correct, Jim. Yeah, over $30 million, which has been hugely impactful for our cancer research program at Princess Margaret. There's, I mean, there's so many different events and programs that uh, inspire the community, and, and road hockey is one of our top. Um, with $30 million, like that's a that's game-changer kind of money, and, and uh, we really, truly appreciate all the donors and, as I said, the players who go out there and, and raise all this money. 
Steve Merker, the VP of Corporate Community Partnerships, the Princess Margaret Cancer Foundation, save 50% off your registration for next year's tournament. Go to roadhockey2conquercancer.ca and enter the promo code The Region. Steve, always a pleasure, my friend. Another great year. Can't wait for year number 13. Right on, Jim. Really appreciate it. Over to Tina Cortez next with The Climber making headlines for his fundraising. This has to be one of my favorite stories ever, but I'm not going to be the one to share it with you. I'm going to let that opportunity go to Nicole McVan, VP Philanthropy and Marketing from the United Way. Thank you for joining us on the feed, Nicole. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so happy to share the story. All right. So we teased them long enough. This is the story of the 99-year-old who is climbing the CN Tower for the third time. What can you tell us? Yeah, I'd love to tell you about Mr. Walter Decker. Uh, he is, as you say, climbing the tower for the third time this year. Um, and he started back um, 15 years ago. Uh, he's climbed it. And one of the reasons he said that he started climbing this was because after his wife passed away, obviously such a sad time in his life, and he found training for uh, the stair climb was a great way to kind of motivate him both like physically and mentally. Um, and so he's been doing this year after year. I know he, he trains up on the escarpment, and this year he'll be bringing three other generations with his family to climb the tower um, as a way to, I think, celebrate their family and his wife and his ability to still climb uh, 144 flights of steps uh, at the young age of 99. That's remarkable. And so I guess training is involved in completing this? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it is 144 flights. So that's about three of the big skyscrapers um, that we have in our region. And so he actually trains. He goes up and down the escarpment because he lives out in the Hamilton area. Um, and so that's a big part for him. But as we know, you know, doing some physical exercise like training good for our uh, heart, but it's also really good for our mental health. Um, and Walter talks a lot in his story about, you know, the isolation and grief he felt. And if you think about uh, what's happening in our region, that when you get a chance to do something like this, it's a chance to, to, to break out and, and to try something new and, and to break out of your isolation. Did he share with you why he wanted to direct his fundraising to the United Way? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He's He's a big supporter of United Way, and we've been running this event uh, for decades. It's actually our first event uh, in three years, so the first event since the pandemic. So he was excited to come back and raise money uh, for United Way. Obviously, we do a ton of work across the region in social services. We're actually the second largest funder of social services next to the government. And for him, it's a way uh, for to take care of himself, but also to give back uh, to the community and to those folks in need. You spoke about social services. What exactly does that mean? Which ones are involved? Yeah, absolutely. So um, social services kind of spans the range. The way I like to think about it is um, if you need support, United Way is there for you. And some of the big areas that we focus on are uh, housing, obviously a, a major issue uh, in our region, making sure people have safe uh, and affordable homes food security, so making sure people have that, that food and that ability to connect, uh, jobs, education. We also do things like uh, seniors care and child care and just making sure that no, no matter who you are in this region, that you've got a connected network to take care of you, to support you when you're in need. Have you met Walter personally? What's he like? I haven't. Uh, my team went out and we have a great video and they met him and I'm so excited to meet him um, on the weekend to be climbing. Uh, from what I understand from my team, he is just the loveliest gentleman um, and so excited and, and has this kind of youthful vibe to him that we can't wait to have um, out uh, at the event. You know, he must be such an inspiration. And you said that he is climbing on the 21st of October with other members of his family. Can you tell us who will be with him? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so his son, his grandson, and his great-grandson are climbing with him uh, on the 21st. Um, and so it's 
it's going to be a, a really amazing morning for the four of them to climb together. I'm uh, excited to welcome them um, to a celebration at the top of the tower when they finish. Oh, that's fantastic. We can't wait to see what happens. So it is on October 21st, 99-year-old Walter Decker will be climbing 1,776 steps to the top of the CN Tower, all to raise money for the United Way. If our listeners want to donate or learn more about Walter's story, where can they find it? Yeah, uh, so they can go to our website, so uwgt.org is our United Way website, and then you can actually go into the CN Tower Climb and search for Walter. You can make a donation right on his page and watch video, or if you're also inspired to climb those steps as well, we have more space. It's a two-day event, and we're looking for 7,000 people to climb the tower and to raise money for us. So the best way to do it is go to our website. Thanks for your time, Nicole. Thanks so much. Take good care. After the break, life-saving heart surgery and the basketball scholarship. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer, making its premiere next week. Heart and Soul, the story of heart failure, recovery, and the basketball dream. Christina Lavecchia with a preview. In November of 2020, Toronto high school basketball star Dylan Columbia's world turned upside down when he experienced heart failure at 16 years old and received a life-saving heart transplant. In the fall of 2021, after a long and challenging recovery, Dylan stepped back onto the court to pursue his dream of obtaining an NCAA Division I basketball scholarship, becoming the first player ever to do so with a donated heart. Fast forward to 2023, Heart and Soul, The Dylan Columbia Story, a film that follows his return to the court, premieres in Toronto on October 14th. To share his story and talk about the documentary, Dylan joins me. Hi, Dylan. Thank you for taking the time. Hi, my pleasure. 16 years old, athlete, just traveled with Team Canada, who don't think heart failure and transplant. Looking back at that time, how did you know something wasn't quite right? I started to realize things were going wrong was at first I started off with a cough and it wasn't really normal for me because the cough had lasted about a month and then over time the cough turned into shortness of breath and then eventually it was getting to the point that I couldn't even play basketball anymore. So um, I had to go to the school nurse and they had ran a bunch of vitals and then they had checked my heart rate and my resting heart rate was over 200 beats per minute and that's when they realized something was seriously wrong. You hear the word transplant. What was going through your mind at that time? As soon as I had the first surgery, um, it was an LVAD surgery. So it had a left ventricular, device put into my left ventricle to try and ease the work on the heart a little bit. And so the plan was to put that in and wait around three months to see if there'd be any recovery. Eventually, after the three months, the doctors had told me, since they hadn't seen any recovery, um, I'd have to consider either getting a transplant or living with the LVAD for the rest of my life. And for me, it was just, I didn't really like LVAD to begin with because there was a whole bunch of batteries that I had to keep track of and had to plug into the wall at night. And it was just extremely inconvenient. And part of me wanted to try and get back to playing basketball. So after a conversation with my parents, we had decided that I think it was best for me to enlist for transplant. And then eventually, um, just the whole time I was waiting, I was pretty nervous, but you don't really know when the transplant's coming until you kind of just get a call out of the blue. And it's pretty nerve wracking, but it was also kind of exciting. How was your recovery? Um, Recovery was really hard. I was just so weak and my body had to take the time to get used to the new heart. So um, one of the stories that I always think about in the recovery process was just after transplant, I had woken up and the doctors wanted to see how I was feeling. And so they got me to stand up and just walk to the door of my room and then back to bed. And I remember doing that. And as I got halfway there, I was already like almost falling over. And I was so exhausted and I was so tired and I ended up sleeping for about six hours after the fact. So I think experiencing that was pretty disheartening and it was a little frustrating for sure. But I think uh, as every day passed, things got a little bit easier and then eventually it was a lot easier to motivate myself. 
And you did get stronger every day because less than a year post-heart transplant, Dylan, you were back on the court and your story caught the attention of former Toronto Raptors head coach Nick Nurse, who watched your game. That's pretty big. Yeah, that was that was really exciting. Um, I knew that the school wanted to make it a little bit of um, an event just because I had been gone, um, not playing basketball for a while. Mm-hmm. And so I knew they had invited some of my uh, old doctors, old coaches, some friends. But seeing Nick Nurse at the game was really a shock to me and everyone that was playing. I really appreciate him showing up because it meant a lot to me. And um, we were able to share a word a little bit. And he was just saying that uh, he was, very um, excited to see what my future had in store. And he said that he was pretty proud of me. So that was something that uh, not many athletes can claim they have the opportunity of experiencing. Heart and Soul, the Dylan Columbia story premieres on October 14th at University of Toronto's Innes College Town Hall Theatre. Can you tell us about the film? It takes a deep dive into the inner workings of how I was feeling throughout the whole process. And I think that the story is um, pretty insightful not only to those who have no idea what was going on but for those who are even um with loved ones who are going through the same thing mm-hmm. i think it can help them uh not only understand them better but help them a little bit with connecting with them and helping them go through whatever it is they're going through and um i think that there's a lot of things that people can take away from the film help is not something to be seen as making you weak but i think Asking for help is one of the strongest things you can do. And not only that, but um, I think that anyone who is an organ donor is one of the bravest people on the planet. Obviously, I don't want to force anyone into organ donation, but I think that if you would take the time to at least consider it and all the benefits that could come from it, I think that that would be something extremely special to me and potential organ receivers. I was going to direct listeners where they can get their tickets, but it looks as though uh, the event is sold out. Is there another way to watch the film after the 14th? Um, I think it should be releasing shortly after the 14th. I'm not exactly sure what date. Okay. I'll try to keep everyone posted. Great. To learn more about organ and tissue donation in Canada, go to blood.ca slash organs hyphen tissues. Dylan, your strength and determination is really inspiring. We're cheering you on here at 105.9 The Region. Thank you for sharing your story. No problem. It was my pleasure. Shaliza Bacchus with the Toronto Filmmaker shining a light on life-changing moments in Black Canadian history. I am all for telling stories and seeing stories and receiving stories through the eyes of other people. And I feel like that's exactly what this new docuseries called Black Community Mixtapes does. It's now airing on City TV and I'm joined by host of the show, Cara Martin. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for joining me. Now, can you give us a little bit of a background about the show? So Black Community Mixtapes is a 50-year-long remix of Black history, Canadian history, um, specifically in Ontario. So we have five episodes, hip-hop, Carabana, activism through photography, Black literature, and then the actual process of archiving and how we are all archivists ourselves. That is so cool. And I love how specific it is to Ontario because, you know, we always hear the stories, the long lost stories of like Black Americans in general, Black Canadians in general. I like that it's kind of zoning in on this area where a lot of Black Canadians live. Yes. And what was the idea behind this show? So the creators of the show, um, Alison Duke and Gaddy Conte George from OEM Media Group, essentially wanted to archive our history, but really tap into the community in terms of uncovering all of the hidden things that we don't know. A lot of people feel like um, our history here began and end with slavery, and that's not the case. And there's such a rich culture to be untapped here. Like There's such a nuance of history to be told in Ontario. And so that was what we wanted to focus on. I love that. And I I feel like this is a great way for people to get educated on things they might not necessarily understand. Yes. So we're really um, approaching the community members to fill in the blanks of a lot of questions that we have about our own history. Like what was the first Black hip hop song in Toronto? Um, What was the first 
picture that was taken here. So all of these things we're kind of trying to uncover and discover. And sometimes we don't get to an answer, but that's the point. The point is for people to hopefully watch and then want to dig into their own crates in their own basements and hopefully find footage, whether that be pictures, VHS tapes, to kind of add to the discography and the conversation of the history that is happening here. That's absolutely amazing. And tell me about your process on the show and your experience on the show and working on the show. What has it been like for you? It has been really great. You know, we have so many wonderful people in front of and behind the scenes from Roxanne who did the hair to um, Lene who actually made the boom bap beat for the theme song. And so it, it's been just, just such a wonderful process. I've been attached to this project since 2019. I was a like writer researcher in the pre-development stage of the project. And so I have a vested interest in all of these topics. And then from there, once we shot the sizzle and now the series, I've moved around to being the host. So I've been associated with Oya Media Group for quite some time now. Oh, well, you got a lot of experience under your belt for sure. And what else do you do if people want to get to know you? Yes. So I am a writer, director, actress, and now host. I have my two short films that are out, No Justice, No Peace, and The Idea of the Black Dollar, um, which is currently streaming on Gem. And so hopefully you'll see more work from me in the near future. I am definitely excited. Definitely going to keep an eye out for your work. And like you said, this is a five-part docu-series. It's airing now on City TV. And if you had like two takeaways from this entire series for people who are watching, maybe for Black Canadians and for non-Black Canadians, what would you say? So for me, I want the the takeaway to be that history is polyvocal. And there are so many perspectives in order to tell one story. And so... I feel like this series is a call to action for people to want to dig further into the truths of all of these topics and to dig into their own personal archives. You know, sometimes we all sit around the the TV screen once a year and pop in the old VHS tapes, but really going through the process of digitizing it so that there can be some longevity to all of these artifacts. And then calling on to the fact that we need a national museum. We need a national Black museum that properly encompasses and takes care of all of these like physical things from CDs and VHS tapes and pictures and all of that stuff. Because if we don't have a place where it's all curated and stored properly, then the history will be lost. You know, that really does open up a really big conversation. And I think it comes back to the fact that we do need a museum because like you said, that's just one person, one set of tapes. Like there must be so much more art and footage and all of those things that people forget about. Yes. So that's the biggest takeaway. We government, we need money for a museum. Here we go. Call to action right here. Cara Martin. And once again, reminder that Black Community Mixtapes airs on City TV. And Cara, if our listeners want to get some more information about you and about the show, where can they go? Yes. So you can follow us on Instagram at Black Community Mixtapes. You can also follow me on Instagram at Azania Music. Amazing, Cara. Thank you so much. You too. Have a great day. If you missed any part of the feed, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you so much for listening.